0: It ultimately distills and distills and distills to one simple fact. And it's solve problems every day. Figure out a better way to do what you did yesterday for tomorrow. And that's the mandate for someone who's in finance department, someone who's in investment, someone who's in the search team, in creating content in investment, in strategy, in data, all of it. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano? It's just about to explode. But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It Either you, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it.
1: Welcome to Great Mind, and our guest today is a guy who I've gotten to know really well over the years. I think we could say we're actual friends at this point, wouldn't you? Matt, nah, we are. We've been. I think past. we're. I think we're real friends. Yeah. Uh, the great. The great Paul Wilmington. So welcome, Paul. So Paul, I, I'd love to start with sort of a snapshot of where we are right now. Uh, and we're knee deep in this thing. It's been three, four months. You've got this odd dichotomy of behavior of the country here opening up. And I know, of course, you're a worldwide business, uh, but numbers not looking good, immigration being shut, international travel still not really happening, yet some signs of hope. Give us your snapshot. Where are we right now?
0: It's been seismic. To everybody. America is experiencing a coronavirus surge. Only two states are reporting a decline in cases. Not least individuals, um, society, culture, business. If these states keep going up, we're going to have a national crisis like we have never seen. Uh, They said this was the way to help the economy by reopening. It's been the exact opposite. You have a yearning for before. This is the number two seed. So. Champions, patrons and royalty looking on. First of five sets for Wimbledon. Fifteen. A reality that still has huge underlying anxiety, and whether that's perceived or real, it's one and the same.
1: Violently clashing with police, overturning cars, (laughs) torching buildings, and looting stores. That is an American television reporter Omar Jimenez being led away. By police officers. Uh, he clearly identified
0: himself. In, you know, so you've got this pent up, I've been locked down, let me go off, um, you know, traveling a bit, getting to restaurants, uh, yearning that, but yet deep down I'm lacking a bit of confidence this is going to go on a long time. Um, and from a business perspective, I would say this is transformative time. I've never, and I know the hyperbole of this, but I've never, ever seen this confluence of factors that are coming together to create change. Um, And I think the acceleration of the change. So I think the change was already there. It was accelerating pre-COVID. Everything to do with how we work, where we work, uh, what we do, how we do it, who are our competitors, um, uh, new behaviors enabled by technology, Um, have all just condensed and I think it's it's multi-generational it's not uh, you can now point to a young generation who are obviously native to e-commerce or other platforms it's everyone I mean everyone is um, it and the last point I think is the polarization so I think what's happening is you know you've got the Amazons uh, getting stronger the Googles the and yet you've got obviously some potential issues around Facebook that we're currently facing at the moment Um, And I think, you know, uh, and I think people are being very vocal. So the last, last point is I can't ignore the impact and the influence and how welcome the dialogue has been through the strain of uh, very, very tragic news, but news that meant we all were shaken to our core and I think realized the degree to which our society is intentionally or unintentionally racist. And that has obviously created, on top of everything else, an agenda for transparency, an agenda for reform. Um, and I think that will bleed through many other categories. Yeah.
1: And certainly that notion of acceleration, right? That's become a big one. Yeah. You know, It's almost like there's like a word of the week almost, you know, throughout this. So we, in America, we tend to view everything through the lens of America. If if you're in New York, in particular, you view it through the lens of New York. But you're a true citizen of the world. Johannesburg, Kampala, Uganda, London, New York. You were born abroad in Africa. You've lived all over the world. Give us your sense on how this has really united the world in a completely unexpected way. And let's find some of the silver linings. I know you see them.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, on a personal level, um, I feel like I've been connected to friends, ex-work colleagues, relatives everywhere in the world, and we've all rallied together. So that's been a heartwarming aspect of this, the kinship, the kindness, the empathy. And as I say, it, it, it didn't know any border. And we were able to compare notes, um, whether it was Asia, whether it was um, Europe, yeah, Latin America. I, I mean, I, I it hasn't been a continent that I haven't felt in some way, shape or form connected to. And as I said, um, Empathy, so it's just keeping in touch, which obviously has been wonderful. But I think beyond that, people that went into this pandemic earlier than we did, it was great to be able to listen to people in in Seoul and, and, and friends that were, you know, uh, uh, different cultures, different experiences, but you could calibrate it rather than just reading it in the New York Times. So that's the first part. I think the second part is we... Should be more connected, so that's the silver lining. But the negative is it feels as if we are more disconnected, uh, more in denial, um, in various aspects of our political life, and that is of great concern. You know, even within the EU, you've got diametrically different strategies between a Boris and a Angela Merkel, you know, Boris Johnson, Angela Merkel, you know, you've got one country, you've got experiences that we could have taken on board from Asia, which um, we haven't fully. The funding of um, the World Health Organization has been politicized and everything seems to be politicized, you know, such a, you know, I mean, obviously it's an election year, we've got a, you know, short few months. Sprint now to that election day, and everything seems to revolve around that. And you know, and even within our country, you've got the acceleration. I said it to my teams repeatedly in all of my communications. We've been cautiously optimistic, listening to our clients, listening to the marketplace. But of course, the caveat is, you know, we don't get a, a you know, a reverse reaction. And we seem to be seeing that from every piece of statistic that we're looking at. Um, And yet you've got, you know, again, political leaning governors who are adamant that they don't want to be seen to be reversing course. So it just, you know, you're putting people's lives at risk. You've got 32% increase in the U.S., in cases, um, and you've got interviews with governors of states that are on fire, it appears, and they're not treating it like Cuomo did in New York City. And we being New Yorkers, Matt, you and I, despite my accent, I am a fully signed up New Yorker, you know we're we're in a complete reverse, but I'm really worried about New York as well. New York State, Connecticut, New Jersey. Pennsylvania, all of the states, Massachusetts, that managed to go into this earlier. But you know, you look at those stats, I look at them each week, Cuomo's not doing his daily briefings. But um, you know, I just don't know, this is a marathon. And so to say, oh, well, we're back to a new normal, there is no new normal. What is a new normal? There's no nothing normal about this. Each week, each month is going to be different. And I hope I'm not being overly pessimistic but the, but the divide if we have cases in Texas Florida in places huge populous markets like Houston Dallas Orlando Miami are we gonna reverse some of these decisions are we going to go back into a lockdown um, I don't know you know so it's it's I, I play it week by week day by day and I tell my teams to do that Um, You know, there's no long-range reforecasting. forecasting You know, it's, it's
1: amazing. I can't think of another circumstance in life where, you know, in any other aspect, if someone does something well, tackles a problem and does it really well, generally speaking, others will follow that recipe. Oh, what did they do? Let's do that. That worked. Right? I mean, Japan is 100 million people, give or take, Right? under a thousand people have died there. They now have so few cases that for their efforts to try to find a vaccine, they can't find enough people who have it to take human
0: for human trials. I think the positive hopefully will be the academic minds that are collaborating. I do believe from everything I've heard there's you know, unprecedented level of Yeah. Uh, They're going to figure uh, it out. No question. No question. You know, and, and how we would scale that, but you know, that's really the answer, but just hoping for a vaccine or hoping for a combination of treatments that will suppress, that will help aid um, and, or be an inoculation in some ways is, you know, is, is a kind of fool's paradise. It's like, well, I'm going to keep mining because I'm just hoping one day I'm going to get rich and hit hit gold. You know, we're doing this under an unprecedented timeline. But again, the good that comes out of it, I think there are lots. There's the there's the news noise, and I think you've got to separate the news noise from different layers. Um, and we can talk about our industry. We can talk about aspects of globalization, and certainly that is a global effort trying to find a cure for something that. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll make certain companies very rich, but, but, you know, so there's a profit motive there. But unquestionably, there is a, um, a human imperative to do this because this is not going to go away. Um, you know, we, we will get other pandemics in the future, so we better be damn well equipped. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's turn
1: towards uh, what we do talk about here on, on Great Minds, which is to probe a great mind, in this case you, Paul, and to tell some great stories I was going back and looking at a lot of your appearances at Advertising Week and some of the best stuff you ever did with us was around that notion of uncomfortable. And I know that you have made that part of the DNA of Canvas. So I'd love to get your perspective on that make yourself uncomfortable notion that you live and breathe and have also
0: breathed into Canvas. So firstly, I think I've always tried to live that life of if if I feel too comfortable, then there's something wrong. And it's just something sits at the bottom of my belly and I've got an itch to then go and, you know, and it's not, it's an itch, even within an organization, what can we do better? How can we do? So that's me as an individual, but I think it resonated uh, within the organization And initially, I think it was meant to be a rallying cry internally. But as soon as we tested it, clients went, that acknowledges where I am today. So clients were saying to me, that is 100%. Me as a CMO, I have got no rule book that I used to have. My competitive set is now completely changed. I've got frenemies. I've got interlopers into my category. Defining what my category is, what my purpose is as a result of that, Um, And then you translate it to every form of marketing, advertising, media communications. And all of that has been blown up. We've got more people at the table. We've got more silos. We've got more specialists. We've got more complexity. We've got the atomization of obviously content. We've got the atomization of context. So that customer journey, which has gone through these moments, how people disintermediate the journey. And you've got the contact point that's been atomized. So you look at any, you name any sector. Video, it used to be called television. Video is going through one of the most transformative times ever in its history. And how we approach that, you know, the new behaviors of the consumer, the acceleration, to use that buzzword, of new behaviours, um, where people get content from, what content they get, in what form, when, and how, is is so. Guess what? Clients were saying it's happening to me at the category level. It's happening to me in the industry level. It's happening to me in partners. Um, so it felt like we were setting up cameras at a time where we didn't want to have any legacy issues, so it felt like everyone we hired needed to have a quota of restlessness for change and the curiosity to solve problems. So we call it, you know, the restlessly curious are the people that work well at Canvas And why? Because they are happy being uncomfortable. But by the way, it's not an option anymore. So I think maybe a decade ago, it was, well, I got outside my comfort zone by jumping out of an airplane, you know, to test my... You know, myself, I, I ran a marathon. I got outside my train to run the New York Marathon. No, we're running New York marathons every day. It's just what, you know, what aspect of the business we've got to rethink. So, listen, this is what it comes down to. It ultimately distills and distills and distills to one simple fact. And it's solve problems every day. Figure out a better way to do what you did yesterday for tomorrow and that's the mandate for someone who's in finance department someone who's in investment someone who's in the search team in creating content in investment in strategy in data all of it and so you know I think it's 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 working because we're building a company that's only four and a half years old 400 plus people we were Um, given some accolades by Adweek, um, uh, Breakout Agency of the Year. It's the best award I think we could have got because we're, again, breaking out. I don't want to be part of that incumbency. Maybe one day we do become an incumbent. But, um, you know, um, so yeah, living uncomfortably is not a option. This is
1: actually your third startup, right? We've got two pretty good names, you know, up on the scoreboard with Media Kitchen and Naked. Paul, tell us what you've learned from those two to help fuel the success that you're enjoying at the breakout agency that is
0: Canvas Worldwide. Um, thank you, Matt. Um, and it sounds like, well, I was also an entrepreneur not to at the Great YR r Inc., which you know well, and great, you know, uh, people that I work with there, I was, I get an intrapreneur at that. Uh, I had the funny accent. Um, I was one of those guys. Europe was a little bit ahead of the U.S. U.S. was largely full service. So it's useful to also say the first wave of change was the unbundling of what was a full service agency. But then I think the other iterations, then it went very much to price. So we wanted our y r offering, the Media Edge, to be the smartest, um, because we also had the sensibility of Wonderman and the sensibility of Y&R. So it was actually complementary, as opposed to Ogilvy and JWT, which were two of the same, really, two ad agencies, as opposed to a direct marketing agency founded by the wonder, you know, the amazing Lester Wonderman, and obviously Y&R, the, you know, the 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 legends that ran that company. For for many years. Um, but what happened was that it was um, Martin, I think, helped set that agenda for himself, i.e., Sir Martin. Um, and he played the clout and we're cheaper than anyone else game. So that's what happened. The first iteration was volume and clout, you know, and actually. OMD was originally, planning was going to stay at the agencies and they were just going to unbundle the buying part of it. I remember them contacting me and I said, you've you lost the plot, guys. You know, you're just following Martin's agenda. And, you know, you anyway, the um, next iteration, I think, was the Media Kitchen, which I felt like everything had gone to volume. And, you know, actually, it was more complex than this, but I felt like the new creative was media. And I had helped take the first non-creative competition to Cannes, um, and it was the Media Lions, and I was the first jury chair while I was at Y&R. But, so I, I had an itch to scratch there. So the timing, I think, was right. I think the timing then of the Media Kitchen was, how could we zag to the zig by being strategic but not worrying about how cheap we were but worrying about whether there was a bloody good idea. The third chat, so it's so a theme is emerging. It's all about you have to react to the time and place that you are in. So the time at time was Media Kitchen differentiated itself. So the time was then right. Then what happened was marketing became more and more complex as digital, um, amongst other things, emerged as separate disciplines. So that then meant... You suddenly had marketing directors who used to rely on one or two partners, now had four, five, six, eight at the table. So then the naked idea was everyone who sits at that table with the CMO, even if they came out of the same holding company, have a P&L to run and have a bias in their discipline. So the huge light went off that in a world of vested interest who gives the client totally objective counsel so we said naked was the idea of the naked truth so it was the right time so i think timing what i'm really coming to and then for canvas i felt like there was this malaise amongst the holding companies so media services has largely been dominated by the six holding companies the five or so consolidated buying points and in a digital world in an addressable in a result solving problems world you don't need 23 trillion dollars worth of clout and 20,000 people that can't you know literally don't even know each other to bring a solution to a client you know there was an inflection point we realized you know speed um strategy, uh, smart people at the table solving problems, but being full service. So I think we felt we could be the independent antidote. We could be scaled enough and do it faster, better, more results driven, um, and give clients, for God's sake, some choice. So I think all of this, the, the one theme has been timing, if that wasn't obvious from what I've been saying. I think it's also finding like-minded people who share that vision of that changing time. So I think in each of the iterations, what was really foundationally critical wasn't just I had an idea or the marketplace was suggesting this was the idea, but actually there was a coalition, a collaboration of partners who would come to the table. And I feel I've got that in bucket loads at Canvas. You know, I think... Um, we've hired some of the best people out of the big holding companies. We've hired them out of, you know, some of the best places, because I think they do, uh, and particularly my partners, Amy, Christy, Greg, Chris, you know, they've, they, they've come out of some of the biggest and best places. But I think we feel we've got a, an extra special kind of independent spirit and a mission. And I, And I think if you're not a mission-based company and you're just working for the man and you're just worrying about the next quarter's, you know, business results, then you're never going to have a healthy culture, never going to have a healthy business because you're just always going to be making short-term decisions. So when you draw upon the experience going back to y
1: and and Media Edge, going to Media Kitchen, to Naked, to Canvas, looking ahead, Paul, what are the attributes based on the timing, let's use your word, that you need to have today? to be successful?
0: Oh my God. Yeah. I I think you've got to have EQ to IQ. Um, I think that's obvious, but in today's, particularly in our current environment, in the society that we're living in, um, I think the pendulum as an industry moved to IQ. I think the bottom of the funnel, Google, Facebook, algorithms, programmatic, are all wonderful things, they're great companies, they've helped shake up the industry, but I think we just have to find the right calibration of the EQ to the IQ, the magic to the logic, I would call it. Um, so I think the first thing is that um, in an individual, so we look for them, so you might be a data scientist and clearly you've been brought up with, with a kind of mathematical mindset, but in order to understand that these are real human beings, you've got to translate it in real humans, they're not just, you know, um, numbers on a spreadsheet you know how do we move how do we change behavior that's off that's our business often we're using techniques media content uh, and other to change behaviors um, i used to buy this brand i'm going to buy that brand uh, oh i i didn't think about doing things in a different way Um, I'm going to upskill myself in this way. Um, So you've got to understand that. Um, I would add PQ to that. And that's the passion quota. Because again, I think that um, as a service industry, we need to turn up with uh, proof point. But I think we've got to be um, good storytellers. And I think good storytelling comes with um, uh, PQ as well. You've got to have a good idea that you can obviously communicate as well. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, we live in an incredibly complex world, so um, collaboration um, is key. Um, training people to collaborate, um, having an ability to work in teams, um, the ability to uh, shape strategies that are not committee-driven. Because I know many a creative has said, "You, you know, the worst thing that can ever happen." To a creative idea is uh, you throw it into a committee, um, but you know in order to be able to shape it, because an idea is only as good as the way in which you go to market with it, the way the techniques you use around it, um, and all of that requires lots of specialists at the table. So never before have we, you know, within Canvas, um, it's quite staggering the numbers of, um, you know, what I would call. Um, define them you know their job titles as as kind of specialists but we've actually created a um, I'll come back to that but I just tap into the fact that uh, we've also been spending a lot of time thinking about how we actually have co-ownership and I think that that speaks to the collaborative DNA that you need so um, uh, EQ to IQ to PQ meets you know, your CQ, your collaborative gene. Um, and I think that's kind of the biggest series of recipes. I mean, I could go in to lots of other areas. I think that, that you know, the, the, the four Qs, <laughs> just, I, I, you know, and I, that fourth one is the CQ, the collaborative quota that you have. Okay, so I'm going to give you two juxtapositions now.
1: They're not connected to each other. The first is what I find to be an odd set of bookends. On one bookend, you have a guy who has no academic degree. On the other side of the bookshelf, holding up quite the literary collection, we have someone who is a senior fellow at Columbia University. I love that about you. (laughs)
0: well it is it is maybe there are uh, i i I am a bundle of contradictions sometimes um but uh, that one is i had an academic father um and my mother was a nursery school teacher and a nurse actually so um uh, but my father was a poor farmer's son who luckily had a grammar school teacher who nurtured him. Uh, he got a full scholarship to an amazing school in uh, the UK, in England, um, called Bryanston. He went to Oxford. He was first in his class, an absolute academic. So maybe I acknowledged that I was never going to be as brainy as he was. So something I did actually get, I, I, I scraped a place at Oxford, uh, where he actually went, Oxford University. But I deferred. And when I went to him, I said to him, Dad, um, you know, I'm actually thinking of taking a year off I mean, we didn't have gap years and things like this. I was going to see if we can see if I can hold my place. And, you know, and it was the most amazing because I was terrified as a kind of 18-year-old. And he said, Paul, you don't need... He saw something in me that I had never seen in myself. And he said, Paul, you don't need to go to university. You don't need that to be a defining part of your character. I think you're going to be fine without it. And my mother was heartbroken. So my father passed when I was in my 20s. Um, And I think he was proud of what I did. Um, um, But I always had this, um, you know, I I was never apologetic actually about it. So I've always, um, I'm lucky to be in our industry where the meritocracy did matter. I mean, I know Madison Avenue and many aspects of where I grew up, you know, you had to have the right school, the right degree, but I was at the right industry at the right time where I got in without it having to be, you know, that, um, that, that... So I've always felt scrappy, by the way, because of that, because my contemporaries all went to these places. And maybe there was a driving... But I was always quite proud of the fact that I didn't go to university, so I didn't hide it. I didn't go, oh... And then, anyway, full circle, um, I spoke at a conference at South by Southwest. The Business School of Columbia came to uh, me and said, would you, would you come in? Really interested in what you're doing, maybe you could guest lecture. Um, It snowballed. I turned around and said, well, I don't really, you know, I'm flattered that the business school has approached me, but I'll only do this if we're sponsored by the School of Arts and the School of Business, because I'm kind of interested in the intersection of the makers and the guys who, you know, guys and girls who can do the the spreadsheet. So I want to bridge both. I want to and push myself to get outside my comfort zone, because I've hitherto now... You know, you'd more naturally say that Paul's experience in marketing was on the strategy side, so more on the MBA side. But I went, I don't want to be in a classroom full of MBAs. I want to be with makers. So actually, um, it was amazing. And they put me in touch with the uh, Dean of Strategic Initiatives, and he made it happen. And actually, we even connected some dots with data and science. So it was absolutely fascinating because, to be honest, I didn't want to just, I wanted to learn. I learn every day. Um, But I sit now on the Committee for Global Thought. It's the president of Columbia University's kind of global initiative. It links together multidisciplinary areas. So it's even more on steroids. It's not just School of Arts meets the business school or, you know, advertising content meets contact. It's at at a global level. And it's been... Mind bending. So let's go to our second
1: juxtaposition. First job, working for Rupert Murdoch. Years later, neighbor to Rupert Murdoch.
0: The Murdoch mega media empire. Let's begin in Mr Murdoch's home country of well, uh, country of birth, as will become clear as we move forward. More than 150 brands. He has the Australian, which is a national newspaper, first national Australian newspaper, the Courier Mail, the Sunday Mail. And it was to the UK that he really made his big international play. I,
1: let's talk about that.
0: You, that you're, have- you're like, you are a font of like Knowledge. You've been talking to some. Oh, the the great minds crack research team gives me these <laughs> little nuggets. Yeah, that's actually very true. I wanted to be a journalist, um, and uh, my one of my best friends at school, Penny, who uh, she ended up getting an amazing job at the Telegraph. Um, and actually, yes, Yeah, she got a job at the Telegraph. So I was pursuing that as a possible career before advertising. Anyway, um, there was a job advertised at the agency that handled Rupert Murdoch's business, which at the time was very biased towards its, um, you know, more traditional newspaper, but also he did have uh, uh, TV interests um, and back in the day. So anyway, cut long story short, yeah, I got a job in the media department of the agency that handled all of Rupert Murdoch's business. And Rupert actually was very, very involved um, as he, as him and his family have been even to, to this day, you hear you know, Charlie Collier, who runs Fox Entertainment, tells me wonderful anecdotes where you know, days, you know, he's worried if he's not getting a call from Rupert Murdoch, you know, even today. Um, so it was very true back in the day. I would go to meetings um, with you know, Rupert, who was obviously still a you know, major legend. He was in his prime at the time. He was fighting the unions in Wapping, in, in, in the newspaper wars. Of course, one enjoys the feeling of power. Although, if I can just hold you there for a minute, I think that this question of the power of newspaper proprietors can be greatly overdone. Um, we have certain, but we can, we have more responsibility than power, I think. the newspaper can uh, create great controversies, stir up uh, uh, arguments within the community, discussion, uh, can throw light on injustices, uh, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. He was in the newspaper wars, we in the TV wars, in the more analogue TV wars. He was a visionary. He really is. He's one of those tycoons that didn't make his money outside of media and then bought a media. He is Mr. Media, isn't he? If you think about it, he obviously inherited the newspapers off his father in Adelaide. and, and, and But anyway, it, that was my start in my career. Fast forward, we live in a co-op in New York City. My wife says to me, Paul, you need to, she's on the board at the time. She's actually been chairwoman of the co-op board, which I have to say, if you want a, a complicated job, be on well, that the board the, of the that is the Aberdeen proving <laughs> ground for politics. <laughs> you, you got it. Matt knows and anyone. Um, anyway, so, but Carol does all that. I said, look, I can't do all that. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Groucho Marx. I wouldn't belong to a club that wouldn't allow me to be a member. You know, I, and, and I know you'd appreciate that. Matt. So you know, I, I you know this notion of you know adjudicating who would or won't be your neighbors is just beyond me. But anyway, um, Carol's on the board, and she said you're going to come home, and we are interviewing. And she didn't tell me who, so I get and I'm of course I'm ten minutes late. Walking, it was actually my neighbors below us. Um, there, uh, she's an amazing sculptress, Michelle Acadona, and she's got the most amazing loft. And I run, I walk up to the table. And I think that's my uncle. It was such a familiar face. But there we are interviewing Rupert Murdoch to live in our co-op. So he lived there for three years. Um, he got married to Wendy Dang uh, while living in our building. We, did, we don't have white glove. We live downtown. We live in lofts. And uh, he loved it that way. He had a, um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but he had a housekeeper driver couple. It didn't look like they had this huge infrastructure, you know, that you'd expect this, you know, and the funniest joke was one good friend of mine. uh, We were, we were entertaining. We were waiting for our babysitter to arrive. We had young children at the time and um, we didn't have a, you know, a white glove elevator. The elevator was, you know, you just one of those industrial elevators and the elevator came up and, um, as our babysitter got off the elevator, everyone was milling around waiting to go to a restaurant, which we're all yearning to do. But, you know, what you do in New York, you invite people over to have a little cocktail and then you go and, re- and then you go to the restaurant. And a very good friend of mine said, after, you know, at dinner, he said, I could have sworn your elevator man looked like Rupert Murdoch because Rupert was there holding the elevator. He's a hes a great gent. He's a real um old school gentleman he was holding the elevator for sonam our our uh, babysitter to get off the elevator and he kind of waved he could see a whole group of people but i've seen him in his kind of pajamas but the one thing that was interesting is we used to get so i had my new york times maybe my new york post the ft you know you know that was my my before I would get those. He would get this pile of like every newspaper. He would get these facsimiles, photocopies of, you know, I don't know, the Sydney Morning Herald or the Adelaide Times. And the, you know, obviously he had the Times and he was obviously on a different time zone. So a lot of those were photocopied and they were delivered. So he was true to, you know, he's probably quite an analog guy. He would sit there probably reading newspapers, ringing each of his editors, literally directly above me. And I was yeah. I never told him. I never told him. I think he just you know. I never told him I was in advertising. Never told him that you know. You know what? What are you going to do? You're going to have a conversation about advertising? No. I, I, I preferred the mystique of. And we did have a couple of dinners with our neighbours with him. And he is, you know, everything that you would think he is. The the maverick, the media, tycoon, but incredibly well-read, incredibly cultured, and most of the conversations that we had in dinners were about art. To be honest, it was, I think he liked being in Soho because of this notion that he'd always been an uptown. He'd always lived probably at the Carlisle or in one of those, you know, rent house apartments in the Upper East Side, and here he was being a bohemian. Fabulous.
1: I'd love to know you've had work with so many legendary characters and collected uh, you know uh, collected charismatic individuals as others might collect you know different objects. who are some of the great minds who you look back upon and say, "I, I really had a lot of time for him or her
0: you know let me I'll, I'll name a few Chris Ingram, not a lot of people know this name. Um, if you were part of the uk media scene he was a legend he created a publicly traded group that wpp bought in the end but he was a legendary businessman uh business thinker and secondarily uh, media mind um, and he was easily one of the forerunners way before we unbundled the american marketplace He had a thriving publicly traded business. So he taught me things like, um, uh, you know, I used to have a breakfast with him, um, I think, at the Savoy Hotel once a week. And he taught me more about business and running a business and, you know, and running a media business. So the business side of running our business, I learned from him. David Bell. um, Many people consider him to be a mentor. Um, I been blessed. He bought our agency. I was um, a very young, aspiring, whatever, Turk in the UK marketplace. uh, And David bought our business. And somehow he took a shine to me, as he has to many people who may be listening to this. But fast forward to today, I can text him or I'll email him or I'll call him and he's available. So he's been a part of my life for more years than I can mention. I was very, very young. Um, he gave me wings. I thought he would hire me. I always thought that his, um, but it was ironic. We talked, um, I, I came to America. I saw American business. I saw Madison Avenue through Bozell, which was the company that he ran at the time. And, um, you know, and, and but maybe it was the best thing that I never then worked for him in America because he was able to be a mentor. So many other people. Um, you know, I, I would just say I love collecting people. My my some of my dearest friends, too too many to mention here, um, you know, have always been sounding boards. Um, outside of the industry, I've always loved the maverick. I mean, I I was mesmerized by Muhammad Ali. I was mesmerized by him as a kid in, you know, in in a, in in my grandma's house in South London watching you know black and white tv watching him uh, on what was then called the michael parkinson show i mean he was easily the most controversial intelligent um provocative and he happened to be the heavyweight champion of the world i mean you know he was the real deal so you know i I mean, I'm just trying to think of people that I mean. I've read every book. I mean, there's obviously Nelson Mandela, and I know you. You know, you've really you've introduced me to the Mandela Foundation. You know, Nelson Mandela, obviously having been born in South Africa, there was obviously a connect there. You know, people that obviously took that sacrifice, but there were just so many different people along my journey that, in a way, when you reflect back, David Bowie, the, the polymath that David Bowie was. You know, he's always been. I, I, I've not always loved every genre of music, but when he died, The Economist said that he, they, they decoded and they said that he'd worked across 18 genres of music. So he obviously, you know, people remember the glam rock period. They don't remember the kraut rock period. They don't remember the, but what, you know, maybe there was something that I was never conscious about, but subconsciously, the notion of being able to adapt to. And change, you know, and that and look, the song changes. I mean, how how you know we, we earlier on in the interview, one of the great songs. It's used anthemically in so many movies. It's used, you know, but it ch- ch- changes. There you go. What, what a great way to end, Paul. You're
1: a jewel, and uh, thanks for sharing those great stories with us. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I love you, buddy. So thanks yeah. for being here.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.